You can go if you want. That song helps us introduce the topic for this morning because we're going to talk about God as a parent who lost his children. And that song was written by a parent who lost his four daughters in a shipwreck. And I hope none of you have lost a child, not even for two minutes in a mall because there's nothing more desperate than losing a child. Before we start with the topic this morning, I have two announcements. And by the way, um, yesterday some of you noticed the tears in my eyes, and it was because of the pain that was in this room. When we were talking about how many children we have lost uh, as far as not being in church and grandchildren, a great majority of you had tears in your eyes, and, and I could feel the pain in this room. And I want to tell you that the gospel gets them back, and that God doesn't give up on a lost sheep. And I, I love the fact that that, that little word... In the, in the parable of the lost sheep, it says that the shepherd goes after them until he finds it. And I'm so thankful for the until because the shepherd doesn't give up. So I just wanted to tell all of you, and that's why I had so many tears in my eyes, because I could see all the tears that were here and the, the weight of pain that was represented um, here yesterday. And I went to my room and I prayed. And I prayed for all your families, for all those of you who have this pain that you want your children back to the way of God and, and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. So let's keep praying for each other that God may find a way to bring them back to Him. All right, two announcements before we start. Today's books, because I'm supposed to tell you each day which book we're studying, we're actually studying two main books today. The Gospel of Luke, which is the book that we send to jails the most, or for people that are in trouble or that have left the Lord, Luke. And then this one that is, is going to be our main topic, main topic for today, it's called Surprised by Love. Today I get to teach you my favorite word in Hebrew in the whole Bible, and it's in this book. And this blue book is the same topic, but how to interpret the Sabbath in light of this topic. So this has part of my PhD dissertation in it, but in a very simple way. This is when you give somebody this book, you're giving them an interpretation of the Sabbath in light of the cross, and you will understand more when you, when you uh, see the topic we're going to do today. So the announcement I have is that at 12.30 today, for the only time this week, I will be signing books at the ABC. 
So if you want to send any of these booklets, they're all like $2, I think they're sending them. And this is for the ABCs, not for me, it's for the ABC. But I will be signing in case you want an autographed copy for somebody that you want to send a book to. So I will be there just a few minutes, probably from 12.30 to 1.15, something like that. Okay, so that's the first announcement. The second announcement I'm very excited about, and it has to do with the gift you received when you entered today. This is a special edition Science of the Times that I wrote from beginning to end. This is the whole plan of salvation in five small lessons. Now, if you go to the ABC, you'll see that they're selling them there. I think it's 60 cents or something like that. I gave you each one so that you read it and give it to somebody else. If you open this on the second page, you'll see the Jesus 101. By now you know that that's the ministry I represent. We have seven media ministries in the North American division that are official ministries of the North American division. Uh, and Jesus 101 is one of them. And I direct that program. And um, if you do the QR code here, putting your phone on it, or if you simply go to the website on the cover, indestructiblelove.org, we created a resource that is completely free for your churches to do a five-session evangelistic program. There are five videos of 30 minutes that go with each one of the lessons in this Science of the Times. So if you register or your pastor registers, indestructiblelove.org, you get the five videos to show them in your church, whether it's five weekends or five consecutive nights, you choose that. You, you choose the scheduling of this. But it is an evangelistic series of five sessions, um, half an hour programs that we already pre-recorded with the topic that we're going to discuss today. It's the whole plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation in five nights of 30 minutes each. Um, Jesus 101 not only gives you the free videos, but gives you 100 free signs of the times for each church that wants to run this program. So the whole thing is free. There's not one cent you're gonna pay for it. And the reason why I wanted to give it to you today is because, first of all, is a great way to explain the gospel to someone. Second, because three weeks from now, we have the call convention for all the pastors of the North American Division, and we will be um, offering this to them, and you get a pre-offer. Uh, we think we're going to run out. Pacific Press printed 50,000 of these signs of the times, and they have already sold out from it. So we are the only ones that have it in our possession <laughs> uh, because we bought a few from them to offer to the local churches. So is there any questions on this, on this? As soon as you can register for the program for your church, you'll get the five videos and the 100 signs. Yeah. Uh, we're doing it in Spanish. It's coming out next month. Right now I have it in English. And the Spanish ones uh, will have the subtitles in Spanish for now, and then we're going to record them in Spanish. By the way, all my books are also in Spanish. They just brought 
only the English because it's an English-speaking camp meeting, but they have them in their office in Spanish, so you can order in Spanish, they'll send it to you in Spanish. Any other questions about this? I think you have to do the as soon as possible, because in the cold convention, I'm sure we will run out of, of the signs that we have left. Pacific Press has already sold out from these. And uh, I hope you take a moment to read it. Um, today, we are doing lesson number three of the five, um, even with the story and everything that is here. Um, so if you want to open on page eight, that's where we're going this morning. All right. Now that the announcements are out of the way, we have been studying what the gospel is. And I want to take you to one verse, two verses, before we enter into our main narrative for this morning. And it's Romans chapter 5. So let's go there. We studied on Monday the gospel uh, in the meaning of the word Evangelion in Greek, which means good news, our king has won. This was the cry of victory that they used to use when they came from the battlefield. We discussed that in length. And so when we say we're preaching the gospel, we preach the good news of something that has already been accomplished by Christ at the cross. So that's the first thing we did. Yesterday we talked about the gospel as an exchange he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could get the righteousness of Christ as a gift, the exchange. We discussed that yesterday from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Today I want to start in Romans 5 simply because it's a good introduction to our main topic today. Romans 5, verse 18 and 19 helps us understand why we can live with the assurance of salvation when we accept the gospel. And Paul makes the argument that there are two Adams. One is the Adam who failed and through whom sin and death entered this world. And then comes Jesus as a second Adam and is successful where Adam was not. And you choose under which Adam you place yourself. Because that Adam is the representative of the group that chooses it. That's why we're all born under the first Adam, and then we put ourselves under the second Adam, and we have the righteousness that he has already purchased for us. And that's why we live with assurance of salvation. So he will make that argument here, and this is called Adamic Christology. It's when we understand Christ as the second Adam, Adamic Christology. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression, there result in condemnation to all men, even through, through one act of righteousness, talking about the cross, there resulted justification of life for all men. It, it was as, as big, actually it was bigger. If, if Adam's failure was really big, Christ's justification is bigger. It, it covers all of the failures of Adam, plus gives us grace for eternal life. So he continues in verse 19. 
For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So this is called Adamic Christology. Which one is your representative, your surety? So Christ dies in our place because the wages of sin is death, and he becomes the second Adam, and we under him and his obedience. That's why he had to live a whole life that was perfect, not just come for a weekend to die. His whole obedience, his death, is given to us in our record, and we stand under the second Adam, and that's why we live with the assurance of salvation. And this is, this is uh, the Adamic Christology is, is very important because people say, well, if we are all in, with sinful nature, how can we be saved? It's because we have a second Adam whose righteousness is ascribed to us. And it's ascribed by faith. That's why we say salvation is by faith. Actually, salvation is by grace, and by faith we grasp it. And then this is the very known verse on verse 20. Where sin abounded, what happened? Grace abounded even more. So some people say, well, we didn't have a choice in this sinful nature because we were not there with Adam. Yeah, you also didn't have a choice when Jesus died to reverse that. The only choice you have is to accept what he has done for you. That's why the gospel happened 2,000 years ago. The gospel is the good news that what was needed for your salvation is already done. That if you wanted to add anything to your salvation, you are 2,000 years late. All right, so that's, that it was important for us for what we're going to discuss today, the whole plan of salvation. Um, as you know, Luke traveled with Paul. And maybe this is why the Gospel of Luke is the most radical, as far as grace is concerned, of all the four Gospels. So those of you that are taking notes, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Luke, because we're going to end up in Luke today here in our middle chair. So the Gospel of Luke, first of all, did you know that Luke is the author in the New Testament that has written the most words in the New Testament? Most of you are saying, no, it's Paul. No, it's not Paul. It's Luke. Because Paul wrote many little letters. Luke wrote two huge books. Which ones are they? Luke and Acts. So if you put Luke and Acts together, and by the way, Acts tells us of the travels of Luke with Paul. If you put the two books together, you have the most words by one author in the New Testament. So what Luke does, which is very interesting in his gospel, he shows that the good news of Jesus is for everyone who will believe. And he does that in many, many different ways. For example, you will love this. He intercalates stories of a man and a woman, a man and a woman, a man and a woman, the whole gospel long. So that you may know that even the women were included in salvation, which was a big deal at that time in the first century. So... As a woman, I say, go Luke, right? But also, he intercalates Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, which was quite a shock in the first century. And in the, in the book of Acts, he tells us how the Holy Spirit had to get out of order 
and fall on the believers that were Gentiles in the Cornelius story, the only time that the Holy Spirit gets out of order, because there was always an order. People heard the gospel, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them. But because sometimes we don't catch up with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has to go ahead of us, Peter was not ready to baptize the Gentiles, no matter how much of a vision God sent him with the unclean animals and all of that. And so it's the only time that we have the Holy Spirit getting out of order. And so Peter is preaching, and all of a sudden, woo, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and Peter says, okay, now I have to baptize them, <laughs> because obviously, uh, you know, the, God has already chosen them. And that's his argument later on when the people in Jerusalem say, how could you baptize Gentiles? So Luke is the one that tells us how inclusive the whole gospel really is. And he tells the most radical parables that no other gospel writer tells. For example, the lost son that we've called the prodigal son, only in the gospel of Luke. The dialogue of Jesus with the thief on the cross, where he promises paradise to one who definitely does not deserve it, only in the gospel of Luke. And Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus not to Abraham and David like Matthew does for his Jewish audience, but he traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way to Adam to show that if you're human, you're invited to accept the good news. Luke is the one that uses the word savior and salvation more than any other gospel. And Luke is the one that says no group is out of this. He chooses to tell us something really interesting. There were two groups in the whole society of the first century that were so low in society that were not even allowed to testify in court if they saw a crime. And those two groups were shepherds and women. And only Luke tells us, <laughs> that's a guru, that the first witnesses of Jesus' birth were shepherds, and the first witnesses of his resurrection were women. And only Luke tells us that the two groups that were completely set aside were the two groups chosen by God to be the witnesses of the two greatest events, the first witnesses. So now that you know this about Luke, we are ready to start our topic of our today. Today I want to explain the whole gospel from Genesis to Revelation. So this chair is going to be Genesis. That's why we had to move the pulpit. This is going to be Genesis. This is going to be Revelation. And today we're going to see the whole gospel as one big picture. So we're going to start with a video of the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Just two minutes. The end of God deceived God's children, enticing them to leave their heavenly Father. They didn't realize that they were being kidnapped by the evil one, and they found themselves in a dark, and lonely place, filled with suffering and pain. Yet our Father would not give up on us. Jesus died in our place so that we could live with Him forever. Soon He is coming back for us, His children, and the reunion hug that has been thousands of years in the making will be a reality. 
No more death. No more tears. No more pain. Only love and grace forever and ever. That's the gospel. We start, yeah, woohoo, it's right. We start in Genesis. So go with me to Genesis chapter one. Did you ever have to rescue your child from something? Can I see your hands? How many of you had to rescue your children from something? Well, most of you. When I was four years old, my father was an evangelist, and um, as I told you before, we used to move every six months. He would take two months to look for a place to put the big tent, and then two months were the meetings in the big tent, and then two more months he established a new church in that city, and then we moved and did it all over again, many times. And um, we were in La Pampa, in the Patagonia, in Argentina, and we were in a little dusty town called Huatrache. And my mother said she was going to borrow a bicycle so we could go into the wheat fields and I could have a nice day because there wasn't not much for me to do in that little town. I waited so much for that day and it arrived and she borrowed the bicycle. But I, I was a little tiny girl, you know, four years old. So she created a little seat for me in the back of the bicycle. And of course, she, she was the one... Uh, biking with me behind her, right? And so um, we were miles away from the little town in the wheat fields having a grand time when the path got a little rough and, and she said, straighten up, you're going to fall from the bike. And I did straighten up. But something horrible happened. If you are a parent, you will feel what I'm going to tell you. I started crying don't forget, we're miles away from the town, okay? I started crying, but a desperate cry. She stopped uh, the bicycle. She says, what's wrong? And I go, I couldn't talk. I was in such pain, I couldn't talk. So I kept pointing to my feet. And then she says, I don't see anything wrong. And I kept pointing to my feet. So she took one of my legs, and I had long socks all the way to my knee. And she took it off. And when she took off the sock, half of my foot came out with it. What happened was that when I straightened up, I put my little foot in the ongoing wheel, and it chopped my foot. I still have a, I still have a, a picture in my head, I guess your brain does that, looking at my foot and seeing the whole heel bone where the where the foot used to be. So it, it took the whole flesh out from half of the foot all the way back. And I know you're all um, looking at my feet now, but let me, let me tell you how the story ends. So she, with something that I am sure came from above, a strength that was like supernatural, she sat me on the main seat of the bike and grabbed the bike and started running all those miles back to the town. The town didn't have a hospital, it was a little town. So um, it was an urgent care. They sat me on a machine, I remember it perfectly. And uh, they had no film. So she had to bike to the pharmacy on the other side of town. 
to go get film for that big machine. They took x-rays and the bone wasn't broken. It's just that the flesh wasn't there anymore. It was just the bone on the foot. And it took me six months to walk again. And today I have a little scar, very tiny. You can barely see it because being so young, the, the foot rebuilt itself completely. And that was the day that my mother gave me life for a second time. She could have said, well, she's so handicapped now. I was bleeding to death in the middle of wheat fields. She could have said, well, she's so handicapped. I'm just going to leave her here. But that's ridiculous, right? Because if you're a parent, you will do whatever is necessary to rescue your children, even if it means the greatest sacrifice, even if it means doing what they cannot do for themselves, even if it means dying for them. That's what parents do. And I don't know who gave us the crazy idea that God is different. Because when we became handicapped, God stepped in like any parent would and rescued us. And today I want to show you the biblical background to this. Because when God had to choose a metaphor to explain the gospel to us, which is very difficult to explain because we don't understand that type of love. He chose many metaphors, a good shepherd, the vine, many different things. But the main metaphor that he chose, he chose also a bridegroom that loves a bride. But the main metaphor he chose from Genesis to Revelation is a parent who would give the life for the kidnapped children who had become handicapped and he would give that life so that he could have them back. That's the main metaphor in the Bible for the gospel. And the one that comes closest to that is the bridegroom with the bride that goes pretty much from the beginning of the Bible too to the end. But I know that we relate much more with the parent and the child because some of you may have an ex-husband or an ex wife, you will never have an ex-child. You will never say, there goes my ex-child. Even if your child has been in drugs and in, in, in jail and has done the most horrible things, continues to be your son or your daughter. And that's the way God feels about us. So we're starting from the beginning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. This is when God had children. And what's interesting about creation is the fact that the whole thing was created for us. Sometimes we forget that the whole world was created for us. The way that you prepared a nursery in your home, something special for, because your children were about to be born, that's the way God prepared the earth for us. And so that's why after the second day on, you get God saying, that's good, that's good, that's good. You get this qualitative statement from God saying, okay, that tree, that's good. Those flowers, that's good. Those animals, that's good. But then we have the only divine council in creation where, crea where the Trinity gets together and they have a dialogue. So this is Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, this is the moment, the crown of creation. 
And so the divine dialogue, we don't have it in any other moment in creation. It's only in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind, says the original, let us make mankind in our own image. Nothing else in the whole creation is made in his image. Let us make mankind in our own image according to our likeness. And verse 27 gives a report. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And that day was no longer good like all the other days in the creation narrative. <laughs> that day has a superlative in the Hebrew. In verse 31, Genesis 1:31, God saw all that he had done, and behold, it was what? Very good. It wasn't good like all the other days because having a tree is good. Having a cat or a dog is good. Having a child, well, <laughs> that's very good. That's very different. And God said, wow, this is very good. And the word for image is not a strange word. It's the same word that will be used later when Adam will have a child. And he will say it was in his image. One day I was preaching on this in a, in a big hotel. There were 3,000 women. And I said, well, God made Adam in his image, and Adam had a child in his image, and you have a child in your image. And somebody goes, oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that, because when she said, oh, I have a child in my image, oh, Lord, have mercy. She stood up and said, oh, Lord, have mercy. And he created a very special place for them in this beautiful world. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to read it. The Lord God planted a garden. Now, you know that uh, the Hebrew was translated into Greek. We already talked about this in, uh, on Monday. That the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek 200 years before Christ was born. It's called the Septuagint. And it is the version of the Old Testament that most New Testament writers quote when they're quoting the Old Testament. That's why when you have a quote in the New Testament about the Old Testament, usually it's a little different than your Old Testament because our Old Testament comes from Hebrew and they're quoting from the Greek usually. So why did I tell you all that? Because the word in Greek for garden is the word paradisos. What word do we get from that? Paradise. This is where the word comes from. God created a paradisos for, the, for mankind, and he placed them there. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life was in the midst of the paradise. So here I am in Genesis. Here are the children of God in his image, and they have access to this tree. We don't know what fruit it was. Today is going to be apples. To represent the tree of life, which was a representation of their connection with the life giver and the fact that they were made eternal because their father was eternal, is eternal. So they had a connection with him and to visualize that they had a tree and they ate from that tree to remember their connection with the life giver. But the saddest chapter in the Bible is Genesis 3, 
when the kidnapper comes along. It's, he's a villain. And he wants to take away the children of God. I hope you never lost your child to a kidnapper. I remember back in Argentina when I was young, we had a lot of political problems, and I remember some of the threats that came to my father's office, who was the president of the union. If you don't do what we say, we're going to kidnap your child. What a scary message. I hope you didn't lose your children. I know some of you have. There's no more desperate moment than when you lose a child, even in the mall, for two minutes. And the villain comes and says to the children of God, I have something better than what your dad wants to give you. And the children of God believed the kidnapper, and they went with him. And God spoke what we call the covenant immediately, like my mother run on my behalf because I was too handicapped to do anything, God immediately gave what we call the covenant in Genesis 3.15. But sometimes the wording is so difficult to understand in English. I just want to tell you that the, the verb in Hebrew is very strong. Verse 15, Genesis 3.15. And, and God says it to the kidnapper in the presence of Adam and Eve, but he speaks it to the serpent. He speaks it to the kidnapper. He says, you're not going to get away with this. I'm coming back for my kids. You're not getting away with this. And so we have here this verb that I love. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. Well, the, the verb in Hebrew is more crush. He will crush your head. What would you say to a kidnapper that just took your kids? <laughs> you would say, read my lips. You're not getting away with this. I'm going to crush your head. I'm getting them back. I'm going to do whatever is needed. Yeah, you shall bruise him on the heel because he would have to die for ransom. Chapter 3, verse 24. They're taken out of the garden. Before that, they are clothed with skin. They try to put fig leaves, but God clothe them with skin, and it shows the first sacrificial moment where God is teaching them that there would be a death for them to be clothed again. And they have to leave. Verse 24, they have to leave the paradises. So he drove the men out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They no longer had access to the tree of life. The paradisos. And this is why it's so strange that when we get to Revelation, we're standing again at the tree of life in the paradisos. The Bible is what we call an inclusio. Write this word down. It's an academic word. Inclusio. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. Inclusio. The first three chapters of Genesis are reversed in the exact order in the last three chapters of Revelation, which is amazing because hundreds of years have gone in between. 
because this is the plan of redemption, right? So Genesis 1, God creates the earth. Genesis 2, God is with his children. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Revelation 20, sin is destroyed. Revelation 21, God is back with his children. Revelation 22, recreation, tree of life, and the whole thing as it was at the beginning. Because the whole Bible is the full circle of what God had to do to get us back to where we were at the beginning. So when we get to Revelation, we find the amazing news that we already, again, have access to the tree of life and the paradisos. And, and the, whole, the whole language starts changing. Let's go to Revelation 2. Verse 7, for example, we start hearing the same words, and it's, it's fun to, to read it in the Septuagint, Paradisos, because when you get to the New Testament, you have the exact same words in Greek. Revelation 2, 7, for example, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, which I already told you, Revelation means believes in the Lamb until the end. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the Paradisos of God. Same word. And we're like, how is that possible? If we lost the paradisos here, how come we are in the paradisos here? And as you keep reading, God is, God is back with his children. And, and then uh, because we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And, and then we have the right to the tree of life. And Revelation 22:14 14 says that we are standing again at the tree of life. When did this happen? That the path to the, what we lost is reopened. When did it happen? Okay, so this is where I get to show you something. This is my favorite word in Hebrew. Amen. In the whole Bible. 100%. Goel, write it down, please. Don't forget, this will change your life. Talk about gospel changing everything, this will change your life. This will change my life, it changed my ministry. I have a key ring that says I have been goeled. So now you're gonna know why is the goel. So goel is the Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer. The closest of kin that could do things for you that nobody else could do. And the goel had very interesting functions. Let's open your little booklet of the Science of the Times uh, on page 8, where it says, Kinsman Redeemer. You see where it is, page 8? Everybody see it? Okay, I'm going to read it from there so that you have some of the verses where, where this is explained. I'm going um, to read it there. You can follow in your, in your booklets. One of the most in intriguing themes running throughout the Bible is that of Kinsman Redeemer. There's a whole book in the Bible written on this. Which one is it? Ruth. Very good. In ancient Israel, when someone needed to be rescued, their closest relative could step in and act on their behalf. He could pay the ransom for the enslaved relative to be set free. You can find the verses there. He could purchase back lost property that the family had lost. He could secure the family's lineage. He married the widow to continue the line. And he could appear in court to represent the destitute relative. The Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is goel. 
Now, you will say, well, what's the big deal about this? Okay, so let's think about it for a moment. I'll add a fifth role that is not written there. So the goyal was the relative that could do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. So the first big function of the goyal was if you became enslaved because of debt, the goyal, your closest relative, could come and pay your price and set you free. The second role of the goel, if you lost your property, your house, your field because of that, then the goel could come and pay your pr the price and get the property back to the original owner. Third, the goel was in charge of making sure the line continued. So if somebody died without descendants, they married the widow and the first child carried the name of the dead relative so that he didn't die without descendants. Four, the, go the goel could stand in court in place of the relative. And five, the goel was in charge of avenging the blood of a relative that was killed unjustly. Now, this is where it gets so good. When God created us in his image, he obligated himself to rescuing us because he's our closest of kin. I'm going to say that again. That's why the whole clue to understand the Bible is Genesis 1.26. When God created us in his image, he obligated himself to rescue us because he's our closest of kin. So there would be a goel that would come, and this is the name for the redeemer that would come throughout the whole Old Testament. It's just that we don't know it because it's usually translated redeemer, especially in the prophet Isaiah. Constantly, he's saying, a goel is coming, a goel is coming, a goel is coming. And in our Bibles, it's simply, it's simply translated redeemer, but the Hebrew word means a close relative, the kinsman redeemer is coming. It's your closest relative is coming to pay all the things that need to be paid for you. Yes, th this is where it starts changing everything. This is where, where you're starting to say, Oh, wow. So Jesus would come to do all the roles of the goel? Yes, my brother. Yes, my sister. Jesus would come to do all the roles of the goel. He would come and pay our price and set us free. That's why he said it is finished, because the ransom had been paid. Not only that. He would come to pay for our property. This is, this is a key thing. That's why the new earth will be here. Because Jesus at the cross purchased us and purchased our property. Do you understand? Now, let's continue. Yes. Number three. When sin entered the world, God was going to have no descendants from this race. Because we were no longer eternal. We were now mortals. And so Jesus came to secure that God will have descendants from this race. That's why Isaiah 53 I know you guys know that chapter, ends by saying he will see his descendants and be satisfied. Number four, where is Jesus now? He's appearing in court in our place, which is one of the roles of the goel. He's presenting his blood in the heavenly courts in our place. That's why we are assured. And five, he is going to avenge our blood at the end of times. 
the Goel, and if I, if I had more time, I would tell you that the whole Bible must be interpreted through the Goel understanding, even the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is a reminder that the Creator is also the Redeemer. That's why we rest from our works in Christ. It's, it's not simply, the Sabbath is not a ladder you escalate to gain heaven. It's a reminder that the same one who created you in His image is the one who paid your price and set you free. So that on the Sabbath day you rest to remember that you were not left in the wheat fields when you became handicapped, that your creator also became your redeemer. As a matter of fact, the number seven was the number of red redemption throughout the Bible. It, in the time of Israel, if somebody didn't have an earthly goel, every seven years, God would step in as a goel, heavenly goel, and all the debts were paid. And every seven times seven, God would step in as a goel to remind us, that he was the heavenly goel, and, and all the properties went back to the original owner, and all the slaves were set free. We call that the jubilee. God always asks us to remember the seven as a reminder that the same creator who created us in his image is our goel, our kinsman redeemer, and has paid our price to set us free. Yes, woohoo. Because when you get that, it changes everything. You interpret all the doctrines in the Bible in light of the goel. So when did Jesus reopen the path? When did he pay the ransom as a goel for the whole human race? It was here. And for that, I'll take you to Luke 23. Luke is the gospel, as I said before, that is the most bold in the outrageous grace of God. And actually, it makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes because nobody deserves this grace, not the prodigal son who comes back, who had asked for an inheritance and had left and spent it in prostitutes. He doesn't deserve to be hugged when he comes back. But that's the thing. The gospel is not a fair thing. It's a grace thing. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Did you get that? Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when the punishment you were supposed to get, you don't get. That's mercy. When you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when, on top of everything, you get something you don't deserve. Don't, you don't just don't get your punishment. On top of that, you get eternal life, which you don't deserve. I don't deserve, but we get it. That's why it's grace, right? So, Luke 23. We have the embodiment of the prodigal son parable, because the prodigal son asked for an inheritance, and this thief on the cross will ask for a part in the kingdom, which he doesn't deserve. And so Luke 23 says that there were two kakurgos, says the Greek. Kakurgo is a, is a word made of two words, kakos and ergo. Kakos means bad or evil, ergo means work. Worker of evil is a perfect translation, or evildoer. Verse 39, Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals, kakurgos, 
who were hung there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then we have the outrageous request from someone who has done nothing wrong, nothing right, all wrong. And he said three things. Jesus. Now remember this. The one who is dying is the goel, and the thief on the cross is his handicapped child. So this child is asking the goel three things. First, he says, Jesus. I think it's really interesting. Nobody called Jesus, Jesus. They called him Lord, teacher, Messiah. But this man calls him Jesus. He calls him by his name. And the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. So even the the name of Jesus is already a request for salvation. Yahweh saves. Remember me. That's the second thing. And the verb remember is a covenantal word. Because when God remembers his people, he delivers them. Back in the Exodus, when God remembers his people, he delivers them back in the exile. Remembering is a covenantal word. God said, I will remember you and bring you out. And so here we have this request. Yahweh saves. Act on my behalf according to the covenant is what remember me means. When? When you come in your kingdom. Somehow, this thief is the only one in the whole scene to realize that behind the cross there is a crown. And and so he's saying, I don't know about now, but when you come in your kingdom, could you please act on my behalf according to the covenant because you are the Lord saves. And Jesus says, you don't have to wait till I come in my kingdom to have assurance of salvation which I would like you to know this today because many of us don't live with the assurance of salvation because we think this is something that we have to prove ourselves to God and we have not understood the Goel concept or why Jesus would say this outrageous thing like Max Lucado says, the only thing more outrageous than the request is what, that he was granted. You know, is that this Kakurgos that deserves nothing gets this, oh, you want to be remembered? Let me tell you, I'm going to give you mansions in heaven, $10 million a a month of allowance. What would you say if your kid that was on drugs and did bad in school says, hey, dad, I want a new car at the end of the year? You would say, really? He says, can I have a part in your kingdom? And he says, a part? (laughs) You will live in my kingdom. You will be with me. You will have all these things. Why in the world would this? Oh, because this is the child in his image, and this is the goel at that moment paying the price for him. And Jesus says four things that I hope you never will forget again. Verse 43, we have been so focused on where the comma is on this verse that we have forgotten the assurance that this verse gives. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is that there's no comma in the Greek. 
The second thing I'm going to tell you is that the Greek order is not the one you have in your Bible. So I'm going to tell you what is the original Greek, the order of the words, so you don't worry about this anymore. He said to him, truly, I say to you today, with me, you shall be in paradise. That's the way that the Greek reads. Please write it down. It's very important because the with me is in the middle of the sentence. And in Greek, the middle of the sentence carries the sentence. He said to him, truly, I say to you today, with me, you shall be in paradise. That's the way the Greek reads. So now let's, let's talk about these four words. Truly, I say to you, when? You cannot have it both ways. Either the today meant that Jesus was going to go to heaven that day, which we don't believe because the Bible is clear that on resurrection morning, he told Mary, I haven't ascended to my father yet. So we know that the today was not that Jesus would go to paradise that day. Because it doesn't mean that, you only have one meaning left. And is you don't have to wait till I come into my kingdom to know this. You can know this when? Today, <laughs> you're asking Jesus for a part to be remembered in his kingdom. And he says, I want you to know this today. You cannot have it both ways. Either the today meant going to heaven that day, which we don't believe and we have proof from scriptures. Or the today meant you can know this today. When you have the same request, you can have the assurance of salvation that moment, today. Because you're placing yourself under the second Adam, who would be your Goel, who had paid your price. So the first thing is that today. The second part is that I want to tell you, I'm going to leave the center for the, the middle for, the, for later. You shall be. It doesn't say you might be. It doesn't say let me think about it. It says you will be. And when can you know this? Today. The third part I want to tell you is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus says this word, paradisos. Exactly what we had lost in Genesis, the paradisos. What we have back in Revelation. At that moment, the first one that gets promised a bite from the tree of life is this thief on the cross. And Jesus says, at this very moment, I'm taking your eternal death upon myself, and I'm reopening the path that was closed for you in Genesis 3, and you will be in the paradisos with me. This is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus mentions paradisos, because at this moment, he's reopening the way there. So, today... You will be, you, may, you have to know that you will be, that not you might be, or he's going to think about it. Where are you going to be? In the paradisos, what you lost here, what we have back here. And the middle carries the weight. Because the only reason why you, why you will be there and the thief on the cross will be there is because we will be with him. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you today, with me. You will be in paradise. <sighs> what this church would become the day we could interpret all our doctrines in light of the cross, I can only imagine. 
I can only imagine what this church could do to finish the preaching of the gospel if we understood what Christ has done for us. And I have to tell you that with me is the key part. Um, One time my husband and I were watching a program where a very known religious political figure had gone to the Middle East for some peace talks. And this pastor that was telling the story on TV had gone with him. So he says, we got there to the Middle East, and the security was so tight that they only allowed the very famous person through, and the rest of us that were in the group, they didn't allow us through. And we kept saying, we're part of the group, please, because the security wouldn't let us through. He says, and when this famous man, I don't want to say the name, was 100 years, 100 yards away, he turns around and he sees me standing there, this pastor says, the security won't let me through. And he yells, he's with me. He says, the security departed like the Red Sea. And I walked through saying, I told you I was with him. I I told you I was with him. Someday, this thief on the cross is going to be walking the streets of gold. Actually, let's say it like this. I'm going to be walking the streets of gold even though I don't deserve it. And maybe some of you that will be there that know my life and all the things that have gone wrong will say, what is she doing here? (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait for Jesus to turn around and say, well, she, she's with me. I was born in this church But I had not understood the gospel. I had not understood the goel. This is why this changed my life so much. That's why I wrote this whole book on the goel from Genesis to Revelation, Surprised by Love, Understanding the Sabbath in Light of the Goel. It changed the way I read the scriptures. It changed the way I, I, I teach the scriptures. It changed the way that I feel about my Goel. I, 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 am, I can't believe he loved me that much to leave heaven and come to pay all the things that I owed, including my death. Jesus would come to do all these things. And you know, my parents' tombstone has a Goel verse on it because all of the Isaiah verses about Redeemer have actually the word Goel in them. And their tombstone says, Isaiah 43, 1, do not be afraid, for I have goiled you, redeemed you. I have goiled you. I have called you by name. You're mine. Don't be afraid. I have goiled you. I called you by name. You are mine. I'm your goel. One day I saw a video of a family. Their last name is Hoyt. I think many of you have seen this on the internet because it became very famous. Um, That day I understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, the video is about a father who had a handicapped son, very handicapped, quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. The child was born so handicapped, the doctor said he's not gonna live much. You, you, you should forget about him. 
The father said, no, I'm going to do everything I have to do in his place so that he can live a life of abundance. And he left his career in the armed forces in the United States and dedicated his life to this child. When the child was 15 years old, you know, they had made a computer that the child typed because his, his hands didn't work, coordinate appropriately. He couldn't speak. So they made a computer he would type with his forehead. One day they entered um, a 5K marathon for handicapped children. And the father came with a wheelchair and this, this young man, 15 years old. When they crossed the finish line, this child had a big smile on his face. And the father wanted to know why his, father, his son was so happy. And um, they rushed home, and he wrote in his computer, Dad, today when we crossed the finish line, it was the first time I felt like I could walk, like I was worth something, like I was a winner. The father said, Son, we're going to enter every possible marathon, every possible race from now on, and I'm going to take you to the finish line. And, and you are a winner. And so their life started. And... They ran more than a thousand races and marathons together. The father died last year after many, many, many years of racing with his son. One day I contacted them and I asked them to send me photos so that you could see what this type of love of Agoel looks like. And they sent me three photos that I want to show you. Here they are. This father carrying the son. This is in the Boston Marathon. They entered many, many years in the Boston Marathon, the father taking the son to the finish line. Then there's a second photo, which is in the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii that has 112 miles of biking, 26 miles of running, and 2.4 miles of swimming, and the father takes the son through the whole thing in Hawaii, and that's, they're about to take the little boat because he swims with a child in the boat behind him. And the third one is, is a book that was written about them called Devoted, the story of a father's love for his son. It was the day I watched the video of the triathlon and I saw this father carry his son 112 miles of biking with a seat in front of him. And the 40-something miles, actually 26 miles, 40-something uh, kilometers of him running with a wheelchair in front. And 2.4 miles of swimming carrying the child. That for the first time in my life, I understood why I can live with the assurance of salvation. I am so handicapped. I'm not an able runner in this race of life, but I have a goel who has died on my behalf, has assured me that if I have the same prayer of the thief, I'll receive the same answer. Truly, truly, I tell you today, with me, you will be in paradise. I'm going to pray now. And we will stop the streaming.
because I don't have a license to stream uh, the video, but I will show it to you after that. So that will be your bonus for those of you uh, that are here, because we don't have license to archive uh, or to record this video. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, so I'm going to live with a smile on my face, not because I am an able athlete, but because my Goel wins and I am with him. May you never, ever lose the assurance of your salvation. And when can you have that assurance? Today. May God bless you and see you at 1230 if you want any book signed. See you tomorrow.